to the very first episode of Southern Fried Asian, a brand new podcast from Hard Knock Media. I am your host, Keith Chow, and I want to thank you for joining us in this brand new venture. Uh, I want to thank everyone on Twitter, Facebook, and the uh, Nerds of Color website for welcoming this new podcast into their lives. And uh, if you've subscribed and downloaded this, thank you so much. For being a part of it. Uh, our very first episode features a conversation between myself and Brad Jenkins. He is the managing director and executive producer of Funny or Die in DC. He's also a former White House staffer for the Obama administration. And uh, ironically, he is not uh, a person who grew up in the South. However, uh, we made the exception for Brad because he is an alumnus of the University of Virginia. And if anyone listened to the opening teaser of um, Southern Fried Asian last week. Uh, we know that we are living in the post-Charlottesville era of uh, American history. So uh, who better than to have a former UVA Cavalier joining us on the very first episode of Southern Fried Asian. We get into a lot of talk about politics and what Asian Americans can do. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Brad Jenkins. On the line with me now is my very first guest on Southern Fried Asian. He is uh, the managing director, executive producer of Funny or Die DC. He's also a former Obama staffer and the co-creator of, of an excellent new political organization. And I'm not exactly sure how to describe it, called uh, Represent Us Now, Run, AAPI. Please welcome to Southern Fried Asian, Brad Jenkins. Hey, Brad. Hey, Keith. Thanks, man. I, I didn't even realize I'm uh, guest number one. You That's are, quite an honor. You are the very first guest on Southern Fried Asian. And and I want to like just tell people off the bat that you, you are on Southern Fried Asian, but you didn't actually grow up in the South. So uh, it's, I'm, I'm making the exception just for you, Brad. <laughs> what you're saying is I'm ruining your podcast <laughs> in the first episode, is what you're saying. Not at all. Not at all. Well, <laughs> the, the, the Southern Fried cred that you get is that... Uh, even though you grew up in New Jersey, you actually went to school in uh, in Virginia. You went to UVA. I did, and my father uh, grew up in Oklahoma, which is sort of the South. It's yeah. like a weird, weird panhandle of the South. <laughs> and I have a, a lot of friends laugh at me growing up because my dad has this Southern draw. He's an uh, African, big African-American guy. And uh, growing up in Jersey, I just had this weird accent. It was like <laughs> Southern mixed with jersey oh that's and and it came out of this like (laughs) it came out of this weird looking asian boy so no one quite knew what what the hell to make of me so um so i'll take the southern fried i like that i'll take the southern fried uh honor so yeah so welcome to the podcast i I wanted to get into uh, a bunch of things with you because you know you have such uh, uh, an amazing resume to talk about uh but i did want to start off with you know your your direct ties uh, to the South and, and your your experience uh, at UVA and and of course you know we are in the wake of of what went down in Charlottesville so just to start off you know and we'll get funny I promise but like to start <laughs> off a little somber uh, what was what was your first reaction when you when you saw like you know your old college town trending in the news what what was what was the first thing that kind of like went through your mind it was. Um... It was heartbreaking, man. I mean, I, um, uh, uh, and this is partly 
perhaps just being a bad uh, alumnus from, from UVA. I didn't even realize that this march had been planned, and, and I know hearing, hearing from other UVA alumni, you know, other people had heard and some had even been a part of, you know, the, the back and forth of whether they should allow this to take place. Um, the ACLU actually was a huge reason why uh, Unite the Right was, was, was possible, uh, that, that whole march. So for me, it was heartbreak. I mean, the, the images, the first image that I saw was uh, the torches. It was the evening. It, it was that, I guess it was the, was it the Friday evening? Mm -hmm. And I just saw it on my Twitter. And for other, you know, for other UVA alumni who, who may be uh, listening, I mean, the, the lawn, which is this, uh, this very epic, iconic uh, uh, home for, for the university and for the grounds, you know, that's where I, I grew up. That's where I became an adult. Right. Um, and uh, it, it really was heartbreaking. And, you know, I will say that the, the way that, that Charlottesville responded just in this past week uh, has been inspiring to me. I think that, you know, UVA has not been um, – racial strife in Charlottesville is, is, is not new. It, right. There were a number of incidents, you know, when I went to college there um, – uh, there will continue to be. Uh, uh, there, there is a lot of tension between the university and the town of Charlottesville. There's been a number of incidents, uh, as one might expect, uh, in a southern school, with given the history of, of, of the university and the desegregation of UVA and, and Vinegar Hill. And, um, you know, it, it, there, there were a lot of emotions, but more than anything, I think that I've been inspired and buoyed by seeing what just took place in Boston, right? right? The, the idea that was it something like 30,000 people came out uh, and stood up to hate and stood up to, to violence was, uh, was beautiful. And from what I last saw, uh, it looks like something like 30 of these neo-Nazi white nationalists uh, marches have already been canceled. Right. Um, because, because they already know that this is what's going to happen, right? That, that the only way that you really beat this is to stand up, all right, right? Like, it's not enough, it's not enough just to say I'm not a racist. Um, I, I think that's the biggest lesson learned for me. Like, you have to actually stand in their way and say that, no, it's not, it's not enough to say I'm not a racist. You have to stand up and say that this is not who we are, mm. right? Um, and so that's, that's, what was beautiful to me is seeing the community stand up and look, I mean, this isn't over. I mean, and that, and that, that's the other, the other big lesson learned for me as well is, you know, those that, that have the audacity uh, and stupidity uh, to go out there in broad daylight uh, and to say to the world, I'm a fucking idiot because that's really the only thing that, I mean, that's, that's what it comes down to, Right. You are standing up in front of the world and saying, I'm an idiot. Right. I believe in stupidity, right? Um, like Richard Spencer and all of these people um, are cloaked in stupidity and ignorance and hate. And we have to call it that. That's, right. that's just what we all have to call it. Uh, I'm through with these think pieces. I'm through with these, you know, people trying to understand 
Um, economic anxiety. You know, <laughs> yeah, economic anxiety. No, these are people who believe that white people are smarter than other people, who believe that, uh, that other races um, are subhuman. This is a failed ideology. We fought a war... Uh, against these people. Mm-hmm. Two, two of them, if you count if you count the Nazis and the Confederacies, That's, right? Exactly. Um, and, and it's funny that these are the same people who rail against, like, participation trophies, yet they want monuments to, like, the losing side of a war. <laughs> it's like, it's the yeah. definition of a participation trophy, guys. It, it, it really is. And so <laughs> I'm through with it, right? Like, I'm through with it. I think every time we see these people out there we need to we need to be out there too. We need to tell them that they're wrong. Yeah. Uh, we need we need to show it uh, in force. That is that is what the beauty of Boston was. Yeah. Like sure. Like bring your fifty idiots um, to a town hall. We're going to come through with thirty thousand people. Right. Um, that is the only way that 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 we beat them. Um, because there is because look there is this. There is this person in the Oval Office, I'm not sure if you're aware, uh, this guy Donald Trump um, and Steve Bannon and Breitbart, they traffic in this nonsense, right? They traffic in this idea um, that these are, these are quote-unquote, uh, good people. Um, these aren't good people. These are fucking neo-Nazis. Like, excuse me, right? No, it's so fine. It's fine. I mean, and, it, and, and it, if you're not a Nazi, you're at, at, at best a Nazi sympathizer, if you're still marching with these folks. That's right. That's totally right. So, yeah, look, the, the other big thing about Charlottesville that people uh, don't quite appreciate, you know, most of these people coming in were, were not from Charlottesville, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, which is not to say that there aren't, you know, there aren't racists that live in Charlottesville, but this was this was the largest demonstration for, uh, you know, this online neo-Nazi community, uh, you know, in recent memory. They, they had planned this for months. They had organized online, um, and most of these people were coming in from out of town. And so, you know, I, I, do, I do feel and empathize for... Uh, you know, the, the, the Black Student Alliance of Charlottesville and some of the organizations on the ground. I know that, um, you know, when I went to UVA, I think the, the breakdown of, you know, the diversity breakdown was something like six, only 6% or 5% mm-hmm. of UVA students were black. Uh, and I think it was double that when I was at UVA. I think it was something like 12% or 13%. Uh, UVA were Asian Americans. And so, it's. I mean, I can only imagine... Um, what that must have felt like to be to be like imagine you're a 19 year old you know black kid at UVA and to see that image right, and, right. and to have this and to have uh, what effectively was a you know a terrorist murder um, happen on the downtown mall um, and the images of these just complete assholes um, terrorizing these young people, I mean, I, I know that parking garage, that downtown mall parking garage, the number of times that, you know, that I've parked there and gone to those bars and mm-hmm. gone to those restaurants, I mean, I can only imagine the, the, the trauma and uh, the feeling that, that the community must be feeling right now. And I think that the images in Boston, again, mean so much, not just 
to the city of Boston, but I think that it means a lot to those kids in Charlottesville yeah. uh, and to the community in Charlottesville that we're all standing up. And I know that there, I heard that there's more planned in San Francisco and other cities. And I think it's incumbent on uh, the Asian American community in particular. I mean, that's the thing is, you know, we, we don't like to think of ourselves as, uh, and, and I say we, I'm throwing myself out there in the we, but, you know, I think it's more of a challenge to our community than anything else is, you know, we don't like to think of ourselves as, as rabble-rousers, right, <laughs> or, or as activists. You know, you don't traditionally think of the Asian-American community as, you know, the first on the front lines when it comes to social justice and racial justice, um, but we need to be. I mean, mm. we need to be, like, we need to be in the arena. We need... Um, we need to be out there, and I know that for those Asian American students um, who are more than double the, the number of black students on the UVA campus, um, like I urge them to to reach out to the Black Student Alliance. I, I urge them to be just as loud and just as visible, and I know that they are, and I, I think that that goes for every Asian American community where these neo-Nazi marches are happening. Um, Stand up, like be out there. You know, I've seen it with in D.C. There are incredible organi- organizing happening um, with national groups around protecting DACA, which is um, 100% an issue that affects the Asian American community just as it, as it affects the Latino community. Right. Um, we need to be there as it relates to racial justice as well. Yeah, that's that's a really powerful point, and I love what you're saying about not ignoring it, but standing up to, to racism and hate and bigotry. Uh, before we get into your life story, which which is what this podcast is supposed to be about, I did want to, I also wanted to talk a little bit about a fellow UVA alumnus and someone who also uh, uses comedy and satire to make political points and also gotten a little bit of a, a trouble, let's say, <laughs> on Twitter uh, for, for a bit that she did on Saturday Night Live last week. And I'm talking about Tina Fey, who was, a, who was a UVA alumnus, wearing her Virginia sweatshirt on Weekend Update. And uh, she did this thing that, that I think that the hashtag is sheet caking, where she uh, <laughs> advises people to buy a cake and, and shout into it. And and uh, a lot of folks on Twitter and the Internet more broadly didn't take too kindly to uh, Tina's advice. What, what, where did you, as, as a fellow UVA alumnus and a fellow comedian, or at least someone who, who traffics in comedy, uh, what, what was your take on Tina's bit, and, and what did you think of the, uh, the backlash? I, I'm very conflicted with this. I love Tina Fey. I actually met, Tina Fey does not know that we met, but she <laughs> came to uh, uh, Betsy Tucker, who is my professor at UVA, who's this just incredible drama professor, uh, was, was Tina's professor, and Tina actually came to one of our classes my senior year, and, uh, and it was when she was still head writer of SNL, mm-hmm. and it was just this incredible experience to get to meet her as, as, a, as a young person. Um, I thought that, I mean, look, I think that the bit was hugely effective comedically. Like, it was just a really funny... Like the sight gag. uh, It was really funny. It it was like, yeah, it's a great, exactly, it's a great sight gag. It was, it it just hit home, I think, to what many Americans felt, which is just this hopelessness. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, it it really is. When when you're sitting at home watching the the new neo-Nazis, I mean, they really are new... They are like millennial neo-Nazis, right? Yeah. They, these are idiot children wearing skinny jeans, wearing you know, with tiki <laughs> torches that they bought from Bed Bath and Beyond, and wearing MAGA hats. 
it is infuriating. Yeah. There, 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 there's no other word for it than infuriating. You know, there are a lot of different ways that you can channel that rage. And for a lot of Americans, you know, they're not going to go out there um, and protest. I think that they are going to yell in their sheet cake <laughs> and, eat, and, you know, and eat and drink wine um, and be enraged. And so I, I think that comedically it, it really tapped into what millions of Americans were feeling, um, which is this sense of rage. And so, so yeah, so it hit. I mean, it was, it was, it was brilliant. It was hilarious. From an activist perspective, probably not the perfect message, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, I, I think that, um, but I don't think that, I mean, look, that, that is the balance with, with comedy and politics. Right. I think that, you know, I don't know that we should be really looking to Tina Fey uh, for, uh, you know, for our direction on, uh, on organizing our communities. I mean, the, the, the point of that bit was uh, to show the rage, was mm. to show the rage from the UVA community, to show the rage that America was feeling. I mean, the coolest thing for me is I think that uh, the smart activists realized that it was a joke. And uh, I saw recently uh, my friend Liz Plank, who was there taking photos at the Boston rally, people brought sheet cakes to the Boston rally, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, so it's, you know, which is to say that it's not neither or, right? right? Like, right. I think that we, we can be, we can use humor, we can... You know, we can use the idea of, of being enraged, but we can also still put ourselves out there um, and stand up to the hate and not just sit at home and, and eat our sheet cakes. Mm -hmm. um, let's bring, like, bring our sheet cakes to, like, to the <laughs> rally, uh, which, I, which is, I think, the win-win. The but, I mean, the other piece of this, too, is, you know, I think that, and no offense to friends of mine who were out there tweeting and Facebook posting their rage about Tina Fey, I think we really need to prioritize Right. Like, I think we really need to prioritize our rage. Uh, you know, I think that in the grand scheme of things, I don't know that being pissed off at, you know, a Tina Fey sketch is really going to move the ball. I think it is. I think it is smart for us to be equal part critiquing while simultaneously doing, um, which is the other the other thing that I throw, throw out there to. Uh, to our community, I think it's it's very easy for us to be on Twitter and on Facebook. It's a lot harder for us to actually be out there in the public square and to be out there um, registering voters or um, knocking on doors for local candidates or you know protesting uh, the repeal of DACA and all of these things that affect our communities. And I, I much prefer us to be out there um, in person, in real life, as opposed to you know focusing on shit like Tina Fey. And that, that's the thing, that the, the backlash or the rage, um, you know, this idea that Tina Fey doesn't get it and she's privileged and all this stuff. Like, at the end of the day, we have to, like, Tina Fey's intent was to make people laugh and to show how enraged she was at what happened to her community. TV, Tina Fey is one of the most um, proud UVA alums mm -hmm. that I know. I mean, she's still very active. Um, at Charlottesville, very active in the drama department, in the community. I mean, this is something that was heartbreaking to her and to so many other UVA alums. Um, it's just unfair to say that she didn't care mm. or that, that she didn't, you know, or that she's, or that she, that you would interpret that bit as, 
um, don't stand up to neo-Nazis, <laughs> right? I mean, that's, like, that is not at all the way that, that I interpreted that sketch. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, look, I, it's tough. I mean, I, that, that is the world that I live in, right, right. where um, that intersection of comedy and politics, where there's sometimes there's really great bits and really great approaches uh, to an issue that are extremely funny, but maybe not the greatest message as it relates right. to activism. Uh, and, and I think that, like, we can have both guys, right? Like, you, you, we can laugh at ourselves. We can laugh at the absurdity of things happening around us while at the same time um, being good activists, right? Like, we don't always have to be um, on message all the time. Um, and, you know, the, the, and, that, and that's, to me, that's fundamentally, that, that, that becomes a problem, right? If we can't, if, the, if our community can't learn to laugh at ourselves, um, that poses a lot of challenges, particularly if we're talking about, you know, Democrats or progressives. You know, there are, you know, a whole new generation of young people who don't identify as anything right now. Right, right. Um, and I can tell you that, the, you know, the, the first way of um, sort of scaring young people into not um, caring about politics is to take yourself seriously all the time, right? That's just, it's, it's a huge turnoff. And I think it's part of the reason why, you know, I mean, if you look at some of the poll numbers, I mean, Democrats actually have a lower poll number rating than Republicans right now, mm -hmm. which is crazy to me, <laughs> which is crazy to me. I mean, think about it. Think about who is the Republican in chief right now, and somehow Democrats are still polling lower, in particular among young people. Um, so, yeah, I mean, guys, like, it's okay. Like, Tina Fey can do a bit. It doesn't have to be perfect. Um, bring the sheet cake to the rally, and we're all good. <laughs> and throw know? it at the Nazis. <laughs> and throw it at the Nazis, exactly. Uh, well, I did, you know, I definitely want to get into that kind of intersection between politics and comedy because, you know, as I said in, in your intro, you are uh, the the executive producer of Funny or Die DC, which is an offshoot of the the Funny or Die website, which most people will know as the you know the place for funny videos. Can you talk specifically about what Funny or Die DC is in relative uh, in comparison to the rest of Funny or Die? Yeah, so we. Uh... So I met these Funny or Die guys. I was working uh, in the Obama White House um, for, uh, for a number of years, and a lot of my job was being a liaison to the creative community. So writers and producers and celebrities and talent, um, my job was figuring out a way to, um, to work with this community, to work largely with Hollywood and YouTube creators and people who could tell a story uh, and to help push the president's uh, agenda, which... It was a huge, I mean, it was a huge challenge, right? I mean, it's, it's a lot easier to get young people's attention during a campaign. Right. Um, right. And even that is a challenge. It's, it's almost impossible to do it as it related to legislative, you know, pushes or issues. That's why we or, lost in the off elections every time. <laughs> exactly, right? I mean, only something like 12% of millennials... Uh, vote during midterms. It's 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 a it's it it hurts my soul looking at those statistics. So, so my job was well, well. How do we, you know, we know that there are people in the world that do this well, right? That that are able to tell a story and make things interesting and compelling and human. And um, funny or die were were these guys that 
these incredible guys that, that we met, um, and they were doing it every day. Right? I mean, that's part of what Funnier Die does is that um, you know they make issues that are happening in the world relatable and funny and relevant. And uh, we worked together on this video with the president between two ferns with Zach Alfanakis. Um, and this is a video that came out during uh, the first year of healthcare enrollment mm -hmm. where the website didn't work and no one was signing up and we needed like a really big piece of content that drove traffic to healthcare.gov. Um, and so this video um, that we helped produce became sort of a game changer, mm -hmm. uh, not just in the White House, but in Washington, because I think what people realized was, well, wait a second, why aren't we doing more of this? Right? Like, <laughs> what, like, why, why are we only doing, you know, bullshit TV ads that no one watches and we spend all of this money um, on these awful ads, um, whether they're TV or radio, that reach no young people? Right. Um, and we think that that's the way that we're going to get things done or that's the way that we're, you know, going to put pressure on Congress. It's, I mean, D.C. is still very old as it relates to telling stories. It's mostly, you know, consultants and TV people. Um, and so, funny or die, I mean, after Between Two Ferns, they realize, well, wait a second, this could be a new, uh, this could be a new business for us. We can help nonprofits and foundations and candidates and independent expenditures um, tell stories and reach millions of people as opposed to, like, five people um, the way that, that most of these organizations do their regular business. And so so it's been incredible, man. I've been at Funnier Dine Out for almost two years, and we've done, I think, like, I think we're up to 25 or 26 campaigns. We have a, a campaign with, with uh, Questlove that we're launching with NRDC in a couple of days. And, you know, th these are, you know, these are campaigns that, to me, you know, n no young person I think would care about if not for Funny or Die making them funny, um, entertaining, um, and impactful. And, like, figuring out a way to get, you know, not just people to watch a video, but for them to take an action. So, um, What kind of straddles that yeah. line you were talking about uh, between being a comedian and also, but also being an activist, right? Like, the, there, is, there is space to do both. There is, and it's, you know, not, there is, for sure. Not everyone should do it, right? And that's, yeah. I mean, right. the other thing is, is, you know, not every comedian should be an activist. Not every activist clearly should be a comedian. <laughs> right. um, but there, there should be, and that's, uh, I mean, look, this is my life's work. There should be people thinking about it all the time, right? I mean, in, in my opinion. And, and I think that there has been... Um, I think it's been almost a glory age, in my opinion, not to be hyperbolic, but I think that some of the comedians that are doing it um, are doing it such a high level right now. Um, you know, people like John Oliver, people mm -hmm. like Sam B. Um, Seth Meyers is just crushing it, right. where in, in many ways they're doing better, better activist work or better journalistic work sure. um, than, at, than real journalists, right? I mean, they're they're able to break things down in a way um, with the use of satire, with the use of really smart research. Um, also, uh, 
just being completely absurd in a lot of ways as well, particularly mm -hmm. John Oliver, um, to get people to pay attention to the, like, fucking bullshittery that is coming out of the White House. Um, it, it's sometimes hard. It's sometimes hard to process how much nonsense and misinformation and amateur hour is coming out of this current White House because, you know, cable news heads and pundits have to treat it with a level of seriousness. <laughs> right, right. Right? Like, you have to, like, talk about it as if it's these, some of the things that are being said are legitimate. That, that we should, you know, approach it from both sides, right? So you have, right, right. you know, you have the, like, the liberal talking head and then you have the Trump talking head and you, you're debating whether climate science is real as if it's not right. completely ridiculous that you're even having this conversation. And so I think it takes someone like a comedian or like a funnier die to just say, no, this is complete bullshit and, and really ridicule lies, misinformation, and nonsense in a way that sort of traditional activists and traditional journalists can't do. Like, they just don't have the skills to be able to do. It's, it was really rich over the last couple of weeks to kind of see, you know, mainstream media pundits kind of take the president to task over his, you know, many sidesism because, like, you guys invented that. <laughs> yeah. You guys invented this this absurd notion that there are two sides to every story. Like there are some stories that don't have two sides and and this is the this is the culmination of that, you know, messed up kind of thinking. Um that you can actually have a sitting president who's already stupid, who's like your uh, you know, crazy uncle, your racist crazy uncle who forwards you terrible email chains, right? Like he's the president now. And, of course, he's going to spout whatever talking points he, he sees on Fox or CNN or whatever, you know. So it's like many both sides of him has, has been a cancer in our media coverage for a very long time. And, and maybe this is the tipping point where people in the mainstream press can finally kind of get off of that and realize that maybe there aren't two sides to everything. <laughs> I, think that, I think that that's right. I mean, look, you can look at – I mean, I have a lot to say on this. <laughs> you might spend a whole pot on it. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the difference with the two sides is, um, is like, uh, I, I don't even think it's two sides, like, Republican point of view and Democratic point of view anymore. Right. I mean, if you watch programs like CNN, it's the Trump point of view, right? <laughs> right. It's, it's literally, like, paid flax. Like, these are people who, are like, were on his payroll right. who are also paid contributors to CNN. Right, right. So it's not, I mean, these aren't even real Republicans. These aren't even real, um, you know, people who have a, a point of view. Because, like, CNN, put a real Republican up there, right? right. Like, like, put someone who, who can actually speak with history and with, um, who could separate himself from, uh, you know, from the, I don't even know what you want to call it, I, I, it's not even crony capitalism. It's just bullshittery. I mean, well, it's, it's just... It's, it's like, it's like a, I mean, we literally are in, you know, uh, a North Korean kind of regime right now where yeah. we have, you know, people on television just... I mean, we, we have a president who literally gets a flattery folder every morning. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And that's the other question. I, you know, as a political... As a professional political satirist, and you kind of talked about it, but, you know, it's... Is it more difficult to ridicule someone where, where it's already absurd, like the fact that we have a reality star in chief as president has kind of t 
tip the scales in absurdity that how do you how do you make the absurd out of something that's already absurd? Uh, no, you hit the nail on the head. It's extremely difficult. It's, <laughs> and, and, and I'll say this, too. I mean, Funny or Die, you know, we come out of... Funny or Die was, was created by Will Ferrell and Adam McKay mm-hmm. um, and folks like Judd Apatow and Chris Henschey and a number of other, you know, comedy legends. But it came out of the SNL spirit of, of you know, whatever's happening, you know, week to week, we're just going to satirize it and we're going to put it up there. Um but our writers, I mean, our writers are some of the best comedy writers in the world, right? I mean, these are, these are brilliant, brilliant comedy writers, um, and it's a craft, and it's very challenging for them <laughs> because, I mean, in, in a way, I mean, not to call folks out, but, like, in a way, some of our writers I've been in conversations with or having drinks with, it's, they're just like, yeah, SNL is just phoning it in. Because all they're they're not even satirizing really. They are literally just having really famous people play, you know, mimic the the actual people in the White House, right? <laughs> Trump or Sean Spicer, and saying verbatim what they're what they're actually right, saying, right. right? And it's low hanging fruit, and yeah. it's like killer ratings. I mean, these are the highest ratings, you know, in in SNLs. I think for the past like twenty years, some of these ratings. Um, but for, for, for sort of the craft of satire and comedy, it's like hitting like, you know, you know uh, lazy slider over the middle. That's not a hard thing to right. do, right? And so it becomes very hard to, to satirize the absurd. And so I think that what, what SNL has done very well is said, well, look, this is so ridiculous there, there's nothing really that we can make more absurd than what is actually happening day to day. Um, and when you have an Alec Baldwin and you have a, you know, Melissa McCarthy and, and these incredible actors who are able to do, you know, spot on impersonations, that's enough. That's enough. That is literally enough. I mean, in many ways, it's really depressing, right? That we are now, we are now at a stage in our, in our American democracy, where our president, each and every day, is a punchline. Like what, he, like, what he says, in all seriousness, what he tweets, is a punchline. Right. Like, it's not even, you don't have to do anything. You just have to re, I mean, the comedians that are killing it on Twitter right now are just retweeting the president, <laughs> just being like, what the fuck is this? You know? You don't even have to do anything. He's doing the work for you. So it, beca- it, it does become extremely difficult. And I think that what Funny or Die, I mean, a lot of the work that we're doing now and in really uh, looking forward to 2018 and looking forward to the end of this year is getting out of this never-ending, you know, it's, it's like a race to the bottom mm. of Trump. Uh, which is, which is, you know, the whole world revolves around what this idiot says every day. Right. Um, and the the biggest the biggest thing that keeps me up at night is that Trump isn't on the ballot next year. And and what we're seeing in these special elections and local and municipal elections is that when Trump isn't on the ballot, no one gives a shit. No yeah. one's voting. And like L. A. Anecdotally, L. A. had the second largest women's march in the country. They had seven hundred thousand people march 
in Los Angeles the day after the inauguration of Donald Trump. There was a local municipal election in L.A. 40 days later, and it was the lowest turnout in L.A. history, mm. right? I mean, no one voted. It was like 9% of L.A. voted. So, so what does that tell you? It tells you that it's not enough, right? And for Democrats to think that Trump is going to be enough to get young people activated electorally and to get them registered to vote, to get them, you know, knowing who their congressional candidates are or um, where stuff really matters, state legislature races are, it's going to take more. And so, funny or die, like, that's what we're, that's what we're focused on, right? It's trying to get, and using comedy, but making uh, these candidates in politics real um, and, and making it relevant. And so a lot of the work, we just shot some really great uh, content with um, super local candidates. Like, these are, these are, I call them kids. They're not kids. These young men and women who are, <laughs> Uh, who are running, uh, you know, for state legislature races and city council races, um, and in some cases congressional races, and helping tell their story because we, again, we suck at this, right? I mean, mm -hmm. if if democracy was treated the way Hollywood treats uh, a major motion picture, like everyone working in politics would be fired because <laughs> because young people don't vote, and and in particular. The, the stuff that we care about, Asian Americans, Asian Americans don't vote. Right. Um, we we vote of all major racial groups. We vote the least, and a lot of that, you know, a lot of that are, are language barriers. But uh, you know, a lot of that also is just if you take a look at you know millennial Asian American uh, voting rates um, and focus groups and polling and the whole thing. Um, there, there's just a shrug. It's just like, well, why does it matter? Right. You know, who cares? And so, well, that's we have what. To change that. And 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 in doing so, you you've actually. And the other thing I wanted to talk about, kind of uh, segueing into is this organization you formed uh, with Kate Park and Chloe Bennett called uh, Run, which is which is your way of kind of activating, I think, those nearly 20 million Asian Americans to be a, a, a larger political voice in the country. Can you talk about what RUN stands for, um, both literally and figuratively, and, and how, how you're trying to activate the Asian American community through this? Yeah, yeah. So RUN is, it, so it stands for Represent Us Now, and we, I mean, it's exactly what you just said. I mean, we are the fast Asian Americans, we are the fastest growing group uh, in the country. And, you know, that comes with a lot of, like, I mean, it also includes, like, every Asian group, right? So it's, you know, which, which becomes a challenge because mm -hmm. we are not a monolith. Yeah. You know, we are, we, are not, we are not just one group. We are Koreans and we are Chinese and we are Indian Americans and we are Pakistani Americans. I mean, there, there's such a large, diverse culture and community and languages and, and the whole thing. But, I mean, that's also, I think, an opportunity yeah. because, you know, politically speaking, and this is, just being completely candid, I, you know, I worked in the Obama White House. We're not talking about the Trump White House, which, um, you know, I mean, there are like no non-white people at that Trump White House ever. Um, <laughs> but, but even at the Obama White House, you know, a lot of my job was sort of harnessing political power and working with 
who are the organizations that can really turn people out? Who are the organizations that can stand up to the Republican budget or can stand up to, you know, repeal efforts on the ACA? And that meant a lot of different things. That meant, you know, calling their member of Congress. That meant actually putting their bodies on the line and protesting and marching. And, and that meant, you know, turning people out voting right, knocking on doors and organizing and, and registering voters. And if you just look across the spectrum of communities, um, the Asian-American community was just the least well-organized. It just was. And, I mean, it, and this wasn't anything against, and I will say this with all humility to the organizations that do do this work, that do do great work, um, a lot of this comes down to funding. A lot of this comes down to the party systems that we have, Democrats and Republicans, mm -hmm. just don't focus on Asian Americans. They don't invest in Asian American outreach. Um, they don't invest in, uh, when it comes to voter information, different languages and, and different voter outreach tools. And so if you don't invest in those things, you're not going to see returns. But when it comes down to sort of this younger demographic, this, you know, millennial generation Z, I felt like there's no excuse, right? Like there's no excuse why Asian Americans, we, I mean, we run shit, right? Like we're, <laughs> we're, the, we're the best on the internet, right? We're, we're the best on YouTube and, and we're the best at um, telling stories and, um, you know, we're engineers and we're doctors and very well educated. We take a look at, of the wealth gap of, of racial groups were always near the top. So there's no reason why that can't translate into political power. Mm -hmm. And so I thought that, you know, Chloe and I met at this White House event and Kate um, was a part of it. And we realized that, you know, as Asian Americans, we just need to be like fucking out there more. You know, like we just need to be, there, there are always rabble rousers and I you know I'm doing air quotes but like the <laughs> left you know the, the left of different uh, communities and constituency groups the, the people who are willing to call people out the people who are willing to you know not accept the status quo and who are willing to um, lift up younger candidates and people who are willing to sort of change uh, the way things are and we just didn't really see that in the Asian American community. There are very few national organizations that were willing to say, like, what are we doing here, guys? Like, why aren't we, why aren't we doing ads and videos trying to reach the Asian American community? And anecdotally, during the primary, I was supported Bernie Sanders, which uh, a number of my former White House <laughs> friends who worked for Hillary uh, were not huge fans of, and. and uh, were, were upset, but they got over it very quickly. And, and, you know, of course, I supported Hillary during the general, and we did, of course, we did the Between Two Ferns with Hillary, which was mm -hmm. an incredible video and, and a number of things. We also did, you know, some videos uh, to support Hillary at Funny or Die, but wearing my personal hat, I was uh, a Bernie Sanders supporter, and I was on the API Council for Bernie Sanders, and I did a video. I was actually in a... Uh, it was the first time I was ever in a advertisement for a candidate, it, it's, uh, which is pretty amazing. It's a video of me, and, I'm, and it was right around the New York primary, and uh, I spent a full day. I mean, it was like a long day of shooting, eight hours, sun up to sundown. We went to practically every borough in New York. We were in Queens. 
Uh, we were in uh, Manhattan. Uh, we were uh, we're up in the Bronx. We were just everywhere talking to uh, different parts of the Asian American community. It was incredible. We, you know, we spoke to shopkeepers. We spoke to younger entrepreneurs. We spoke to uh, a young doctor. And we put together this, this video, and we, we released it. And I kid you not, there was a Hillary person who scoffed at the fact that Bernie was doing an Asian-American ad, that it was like pandering to the Asian-American community, because they'd never seen it before. Right, right. Like, they'd never, they'd never seen, and that's, that's the problem, and in my opinion, that, that was sort of the problem with our politics and the problem with, um, with representation and storytelling, if you've never seen anything like that before, it seems weird. It seems jarring. Mm-hmm. And that's the way my friend saw it. She, she was sort of in a, you know, has grew up in politics, had never seen a young Asian American star in an ad for a candidate talking about Asian American issues. And for some reason, that was, that was bad. <laughs> that was... That, that was a negative to her. Well, I think it's because, uh, like you were saying, the perception that Asian Americans don't vote, so you don't go after... Why would you even go after a group that's not going to vote for you? Yeah, it was It was almost just like, that's so silly, right? <laughs> like, look, that's, that Bernie Sanders, he doesn't know what he's doing. He's actually trying to reach Asian Americans. Like, that's a bad thing. Right. So, you know, anyway, so, I mean, I think the biggest lesson learned for me, and part of the reason why Donald Trump won, was... The world has changed, right, in so many different ways, and our politics has not. Mm-hmm. Our politics has not, largely because of uh, institutional forces. I think we've relied on uh, institutions, right? We've relied on, oh, this is how this is how politics works, right? There's there's a two party system, and this party supports these candidates, and then these candidates win, and it's all largely top down. Right, that's the way that politics has been, and what Donald Trump did was he destroyed every institution, right. and he's continuing to destroy <laughs> every institution. He's not done yet. <laughs> he's not done yet. Right, everything is being destroyed, and what he's proved is that these institutions have very little power, mm. very little power. Although we think that they have power because, you know, we think of power, we think of money, right? We think of influential people, uh, I'm, um, again, I'm doing air quotes, yeah. <laughs> um, who, you know, who are old and, and who have, you know, decades of insider status. And, um, and so, you know, these are the people that, that we need to be listening to. Um, and Donald Trump proved that what you really just need is a massive platform and, unfortunately, uh, a compelling story. His story was compelling uh, largely because of victimization. Oh yeah, and I was gonna, you and just information s- scare the shit it. out of people. You uh, scared the shit out of people. Yeah. Well, and he scared the shit out of the right people because he scared the shit out of us too, and that's why we didn't vote for him. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but he also he scared, scared the shit out of everyone. But he bar- but he, so, but but basically he scared the shit out of white people. That I think that was the, he scared the shit out of white people. <laughs> that's that's right. And he also was helped by the fact that he had this major media entity that has been trafficking in creating white fear since Obama was, was elected. In fact, even before Obama was elected, Fox News has been, right. Fox News wrote the template 
for Donald Trump. And there's, there's, you know, when people are like, why does Donald Trump watch Fox News every day? Donald Trump is literally like if Fox News created a candidate in a lab. Yeah. <laughs> he, he is 100% like what he says, what he thinks, how he approaches politics is Fox News. Yeah. It is 100% Fox News. It is surface level knowledge of any policy. Fox News isn't really interested in facts. They're interested in, you know, hot chirons and, and you know, stoking fear and demonizing groups, large groups. That is what Donald Trump ran on. He ran on the Fox News model. And unfortunately, our other institutions that we hoped were there on the Republican and the Democratic side, because first you had to get through the Republican Party, um, they just weren't there. We, We just weren't there to tell that counter story and to activate people in a way that, gets to the human level of like why this shit matters right like why does it matter yeah i I mean one i want to kind of like bring this back to you know we've been talking about politics more generally throughout the show and and i I did want to kind of focus a little bit on uh you know the region that this podcast is named after and that's the south and you know we were talking about like how the democrats kind of write off whole groups of people um but you know ever since nixon's southern strategy we've kind of written off the south as as a winnable electoral part of the map and i wonder is there a way like is there a way to reach folks like why is the south as someone who's a person of color who grew up in the south i understand the history of racism and bigotry that exists down there but there's also large communities of color in the south yeah whole swaths of black communities in the south and other minority groups is isn't there a way to turn this and I, i think this was also hillary's Part of Hillary's misstep is that she was like, we're going to turn Nevada and Texas blue and, and forgot about Wisconsin and Michigan. But, yeah, um, yeah. but uh, you know, similarly, you know, that also goes to say that they're like racist assholes in the north, too. Right. Like, it's not like racism is the dominion of only the south. How can we as a political organization, as, as a political mind, kind of reclaim you know, parts of the country that have been written off? Because, again, you know, Republicans tend to win where there's no people. So why should yep. we let why should we let whole swaths of like cornfields <laughs> determine who was the president and not not like places where people actually live? Look, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I, I think that I mean a lot of this comes down to these institutions that we're just we're I guess we're all disparaging now because Donald Trump was able to, to destroy them all. <laughs> but you know, a lot of it comes down to tactical decisions, right? I mean I think that, you know, one we have uh, a gerrymandered uh, country where so few uh, congressional districts are competitive, mm-hmm. and so resources are spent in these districts that are competitive. And a lot of that was, again, beyond just a Southern strategy, Republicans in the past 30 years have out-invested Democrats in state legislatures. I mean, right. it's almost like 10 to 1. And the reason why is because state legislatures are the ones who write these maps. Right. And so the more gerrymandered these districts become, the less voice people of color, and particularly Asian Americans in the South, have. Because it just doesn't matter. Because they just live in a red district mm-hmm. that eight, you know, 85% of the district are Republican. And so the race doesn't become between a Democrat and a Republican. The race is really who's the most conservative Republican. The, re- the real race is the primary, right? And so the extremes just become even more extreme. 
But I think that you're right. I mean, that's the thing that's so troubling is these state legislature races are totally winnable. Mm -hmm. They are, especially Asian Americans in these communities, right? Asian Americans, you know, in pockets in the South, but especially, you know, in the Midwest and on the coast, there are pockets in the country where Asian Americans have huge percentages. Um, but the idea of running for state legislature just isn't interesting or isn't cool right. or isn't sexy or isn't, more importantly, being invested. Like, no one is actually saying, hey, young president of, uh, you know, some local community college, uh, student government, you should consider running for office. You should consider running uh, for city council or state legislature. We need to be doing a lot more of that. And then I think, you know, on a whole, and this is something that run is going to be doing and we're doing every, uh, almost every day. Um, but we're just, Asians, Americans just need to be more visible, yeah. right? I mean, a lot of the work that we're doing is lifting up um, and doing events with Asian American leaders that are already out there. So doing events with Tulsi Gabbard, doing events with Ted Lieu, there, there are these shining star API political leaders uh, in the national sphere. Um, and they are so excited and hungry to get more of a pipeline of, of young API talent to think about running for office. Because, you know, culturally speaking, that's just not something that, at least in my household, you know, I grew up uh, with Republican parents. Uh, truth be told, both my parents voted for Donald Trump. Um, my, my father uh, is an African-American Vietnam War vet. He may have been, like, the only black guy in New York to vote for <laughs> Donald Trump. And my mom, who's, you know, Korean-American, grew up outside Seoul, uh, listens to Rush Limbaugh every day, mm. is a huge Republican. Growing up, we never really talked much about politics, but the idea of, the idea of like, running for office or, like, working or serving your government was, like, the worst thing you could do, Right. And that's coming from a Republican household, but you know, <laughs> anecdotally talking to other Asian American friends, they all nod in agreement, even if their parents were liberal, right? It's no, it's like keep your head down, right? Well, there's really that hard. right the stereotype of yeah. uh, the nail that stands up gets hammered down kind of thing. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah, or keep your head down. My 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 mom's her ancient Korean saying was, "The good wheat bows their head, the weed <laughs> sticks their head up." Right. right. So and politics is all about sticking your head up. It's all about saying I'm the person. And, you know, I was taught at a very early age that people who want attention to themselves are bad people for, for some for some reason. So speaking of model minorities, right, isn't the stereotype that yeah. Asian parents want their kids to be lawyers and doctors? And if that's the case, yeah. where are all these Asian American lawyers who could become, you know, legislators <laughs> and congressmen, right? Like if there's so many that's Asian true. American lawyers Let's get them into policy and politics. That's actually that's actually a really good point. I never <laughs> like there should be there should be a pipeline of recruitment of all of the Asian American lawyers who are probably so disillusioned after working at like some like white shoe law firm for ten years, <laughs> right? Who like really want to run for office? Maybe that's I think that's Run Two Point Out. That's like go. our offshoot. We just got get a whole bunch of lawyers uh, to run for <laughs> office. I love that. 
So uh, before we end, one of the things that we, we, you know, this is the first episode, so you're, we're setting the precedent now. You know, we're called Southern Fried Asian, so I wanted to end on talk thinking of, like, food, because I know that for Asian Americans in particular, but also Southerners, there's nothing we find more important than food uh, in, in both communities. <laughs> so, um, again, I know that you didn't grow up necessarily in the South, but you said your dad was from Oklahoma. Uh, you spent a significant portion of your life in, in Charlottesville. I, I mean, I think you live, you know, Technically, according to the U.S. Census Bureau, you technically live in the South now. Um, this is true. Yeah. <laughs> uh, is there is there a particular dish that reminds you of either UVA or like where your dad grew up? Like, what is the what is the one dish that you always return to that makes you think of uh, of home or my? Yeah, look, my, my favorite thing about this podcast is the name. So well done <laughs> on the name. Great name, man. No, so. Yeah, and I love this last question. This is like this is very near and dear to my heart because growing up, you know, again, I grew up in Trenton, New Jersey, at very Italian, uh, Italian American neighborhood. I didn't even appreciate how Italian my neighborhood was until I showed my high school yearbook to my to my wife, and she was like, "Every single person <laughs> in, your, in your class is Italian." I'm like, "Oh yeah, I didn't realize that." But uh, but no, growing up, my friends would always laugh because our cuisine in the Jenkins household, so you, you can imagine, you know, my mom every day, uh, our, the rice cooker in our house was on every every day, <laughs> um, and kimchi, you know, we, uh, my mom was very old school, she would actually um, store the kimchi, she would actually dig up the dirt, she would like mm. put kimchi, vats of kimchi in our lawn, in our backyard, nice. um, to keep it cool. And there's a there's a, an iconic uh, anecdote of our family history of uh, one one of our friends actually we were playing football in the backyard and he oh. fell in the hole oh, he no. fell in the kimchi and it was like traumatizing for him for a number of years. Um, <laughs> That's how long it took to get the dad, smell off, I think. That, no, seriously. <laughs> I mean, we uh, you know, and my dad grew up in Oklahoma where fried food was a way of life I and mean, we when we visit my, the jenkins family and jenkins reunions i mean the size of these deep fryers were just <laughs> like astronaut i've never seen deep fryers this big and so you know he grew up off of you know catfish and uh chicken fried steak which mm. is a huge piece of his cuisine spare ribs so you'd go to our house and every night we would have you know, kimchi, rice, bulgogi, uh, and also catfish, steroids. <laughs> uh, it was just cornbread. Very, yeah, cornbread, um, collard greens. It was this very, uh, very interesting mix of, 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 you know, black soul food mm. and real S-E-O-U-L soul food. Uh, <laughs> right. Korean food uh, and this fusion. So... There's got to be there's got to be a Korean soul food uh, fusion well, restaurant with that name somewhere. There, there should be. There sh- we we our, our family has always joked about how that's what my parents were going to do in retirement. <laughs> They're going to open up Walter and Sunia's Soul Food S E O U L Soul Food. But it was a huge part again, and like you don't appreciate it until you get older, right? Like growing up in New Jersey, uh, you know, my dad had this Southern drawl and. I had this very weird accent that was like half Jersey, half <laughs> sort of Oklahoman. You know, like I don't think friends knew what the hell I was. Um, but my identity was really the food. I felt like my identity was my food. Yeah. Because no one else ate what we ate. You know. Right. And 
I would bring like kimchi to lunch, like I did in elementary school. Yeah, well, I can, I'm sure that that went well. <laughs> it, well, it's, it's exactly you know speaking of storytelling, it's exactly like that fresh off the boat, <laughs> you know, the pilot, the pilot episode where you know you growing up you start to be ashamed yeah. almost, right? And so much of my so much of my upbringing, so much of my identity around being Asian American and my race was being ashamed, was being ashamed of, oh, well, I have this stinky lunch that no one, no one wants to sit next to me mm-hmm. because my lunch smelled different and it was weird. And, it, you know, it wasn't until I got older and I started to really be proud of the fact that this is who I am and, like, now Korean food is, like, cool, right. which is so bizarre to me, by the way. The, the, like, it, it wasn't until, like, after college that, like, I go to my farmer's market and surrounded by, like, hipsters in, in Washington, D.C., and they're, like, buying, like, shitty kimchi. It's like, <laughs> you, you know, it's, these white people making kimchi now, it's like, oh, okay, I guess it's cool now. It's like, like, and, like, like Annandale's not that far away, guys. Like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> or if I send my children uh, to, to daycare now with kimchi, that would be considered cool. But it's, but it's, you know, it's how far we've come. And I do think that my work at Run and also my work at Funny or Die and in telling the Asian American story, it's so, so important. Mm-hmm. And so Melvin Marr, who's a friend, you know, showrunner, fresh off the boat, and, you know, Constance Wu and Randall and all these guys, I mean, these things matter. You know, like fresh off the boat, I grew up, watching the wonder years Mm -hmm. and it was such an incredible show and i felt like i was a part of the arnold family and i had to just sort of superimpose the things that were unique to my life to his story and to make myself feel like oh yeah yeah it's sort of like my childhood um and so i'm just thinking out loud and seeing you know the younger version of me you know watching these stories of themselves of like who they actually are, it's so very empowering. So, you know, what you're doing with this podcast, what you and Jeff have been doing in in telling our stories, I honestly think it's maybe one of the most important things that can be done because there, there just aren't enough, there aren't enough of our stories being told. And this comes back to the, to the politics of these things and back to Charlottesville when we don't see ourselves and we don't see our stories we don't believe that we have power. Right. And what that Charlottesville rally was, what those torches mean, those torches are an attempt to terrorize mm-hmm. and to take power away, right? To take power away from other races. It's a scare tactic. It's, it's fear. They're, they're, they're instilling fear in communities with these guns and with these torches. Right. And, and their pop collars and their skinny jeans and their fucking tiki torches they bought at Best Buy. Like, it's so absurd to me. And we as Asian Americans, we just have to stand up. Yeah. We do. Like, we can't. I know it's so easy for us to just be comfortable, right? Like, it's so easy for us to sort of just, like, lay back in the cut and, like, hang out. And, you know what I mean? Like keep our heads down and get our good grades. I'm going to do all the myths and, and you know, I don't mean it seriously, but right, it's, right. it's very easy for us to, to stay safe um, because we are, as Asian Americans, we are perhaps feel like we're adjacent to whiteness. 
You know, like we, we're, we're right there, right? But the reality is we're not. The reality is we need to stand with our black brothers and sisters and our Latino brother and mm-hmm. sisters, and, and we need to be out there. And our, and our voices are so, like, we don't realize how much power we have as Asian Americans. Yep. But we're just not we're just not using it, man. Like we're, we're, we're not as, we're not as loud as we can be. I know we can be loud, you know? And so, so again, thank you for doing this pod because I think that it's inspiring to me that, that you guys are just going to go out and do it. And that's the other thing that we've learned with this past election, right? The one thing about Trump is he just did it, right? I mean, he, he completely, fucking maniacal and an idiot and knows nothing about policy knows nothing about the way our democracy works i don't even think he understands like the three branches of our government and like how anything works but you know what he did do he was like you know what i'm gonna run for president i'm just gonna do it (laughs) even though everyone is telling me that i can't do it i'm just gonna do it and what ended up happening is we learned that like the emperor has clothes like, the Republican Party doesn't have power. The Democratic Party doesn't have power. He just did it. And I think that that's the way, there's one thing that we can take away from Donald Trump, is that Asian Americans, we need to start being brave and just believing in ourselves and believing we can just do it. Right. And we need to build, you know, this Trump era is, is crazy, and who knows how long it will last. But shame on us if we're not building out our community now for the future, right? Like, if we can't organize ourselves now, if we can't support fellow Asian Americans running for office, if we can't recruit young Asian Americans to run or to serve, it's never going to happen. <laughs> you know? Like, no, that's like now, now is the time. And so, you know, so thank you for doing this pod and hopefully – you know, people will get fired up and hear this. And if there are any, you know, young APIs running for office, like, reach out to me, tweet me. You know, we're doing events with, you know, candidates all over the country. We want to tell your story. We're doing videos. Um, we're trying to build, you know, trying to build a movement here. And, yeah. uh, and, and you know, hopefully keep people laughing while we do it. So, so <laughs> well, thank you, man. No, I, I thank you. That's why we look to, to organizations like Run and, and what you're doing there and, and Funny or Die to, to help spur that movement on. So for folks, as you, you just reached out to, folks who are listening, who want who want to get in touch with you, how can they find you on the Internet, on social media, uh, your various handles that you can share with the world? Uh, yeah, I, you can find me everywhere. I, 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 I tweet. I get, in a lot of, I get in a lot of Twitter and Facebook fights. This, I'll just be I'll – be, I'm just – Truth be told, I'm one of those people. Um, I'm super annoying. No, uh, my, my Twitter handle is just at Brad Jenkins, and my Facebook is, uh, I think, Bradley Jenkins. And on Instagram, I mean, my DMs are open. You can DM me. You can friend me on Facebook. Like, I, I'm 100% available. And and the really fun thing is we're – the cool thing about Run is, like, we've just started it. We've done five events now. We've done, you know, events with members of Congress, with – uh, candidates for governor. Um, we've done events with, you know, big celebrities and filmmakers. Uh, we did an event with Justin Chan, who his film Gook, mm-hmm. uh, which is uh, close to my heart. It's it's set in the L.A. riots in the early 90s. 
uh, and explores the intersection of uh, the Korean American community and the black community mm-hmm. um, in in LA. It's, it's just an incredible piece of art, and, and I feel like this could be the Asian American moonlight. But but here's the thing: Asian Americans, there's 20 million of us. We all need to go see this film, <laughs> right? Like. Asian Americans, like we all need to go out and support Gook. So please, uh, it it premieres. Uh, you could probably look it up, but just Gook Gook hashtag Gook film. It just premiered last week in L- in LA, and it, it expands this weekend uh, in New York and DC and in other places. But um, but yeah, man, we are run. We're all about shining a spotlight on incredible Asian Americans. So please. Please reach out. And that, that would be runaapi.org? Yeah. Oh, yeah. See, you're doing a better job than me. <laughs> so, yeah. our, our website is uh, runaapi.org, and our Twitter and Facebook handles and Instagram is just runaapi. And there's a sign-up sheet. We've already, it's incredible. We've already had thousands of people sign up. Uh, that's largely thanks to Chloe Bennett, who uh, is our founder and who has a massive following. But we've had thousands of, of Asian Americans sign up to get involved and to hear all the great stuff that we're doing. If you want to host a run event, um, please let us know. We're um, we're going to start doing some events in some very important states this year in uh, New Jersey, uh, which has a governor's race, and Virginia, uh, which has a governor's race. But we want to go everywhere, man. Mm-hmm. We want to go to Texas. We want to get down south. Let's get down get south. Southern fried. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If there's, if there's any, yeah, if there's any uh, southern fried listeners, please get please get in touch with us. We we definitely want to come to the south and do something fun. So so yeah. So look us up. Agreed. Well, th- again, thank you so much, but this has been uh, a fun conversation. I, I appreciate you taking time out to talk to us. And uh, good luck with Run in the future. Good luck at Funny or Die. And uh, let's. Yeah, and I apologize for the language. I imagine oh. you're going to have to like delete everything. No, I no, said no. We, we, we got that. We got that E. <laughs> we have that. We got that red E. So we're all good. Uh, all right, cool. Well, thank, thank you, so you much, again, man. man. I really appreciate it. Once again, I want to thank Brad Jenkins for being the very first guest here on Southern Fried Asian. I also want to thank you out there for listening to our brand new podcast. You can subscribe and download Southern Fried Asian on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, as well as Google Play. And follow us on Twitter at Southern Asians. Find out more about the podcast and other podcasts and hard knock media at thenerdsofcolor.org. And until next time, keep it Southern Fried. Thanks, y'all.